Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I got good news. It's warming up out there. I think by the time we leave this afternoon, we're going to hit zero. <laughs> Woo! Hey, got to celebrate whatever good news you get, right? So, um, I really feel like God um, is testing the unity in the body of Christ. That's something that um, we're facing, that God is dealing with us about, and God is testing us on. And so I thought I would go ahead and try it out. Go Buccaneers. Well, there's, there's more woos than I thought, because there's a lot of Chiefs fans here. So, so I just, I thought maybe I'd get booed down by the people wearing Chiefs stuff. So, um, yeah, <laughs> one family in unity, regardless of who you uh, uh, are rooting for. Um, I... Uh, I think, it was, I think it was three years ago today. I believe it was the last time I preached on a, on a Super Bowl Sunday. And I made this bold and daring prediction that um, I, I predicted whoever was going to win represented the nation. It was Pete, it was, it, that Super Bowl was Eagles versus Patriots. So it's pretty safe. Um, <laughs> um, so... Here's what I want to take a look at this morning, just for a few minutes, is because um, it's easy to make a, a Super Bowl prediction, right? Um, but there's been a lot of uh, a lot of other ideas, a lot of other prophetic words, a lot of other prophecies that have been swirling around, and we are living in unprecedented times of a lot of confusion. There's a whole lot of confusion. Um, on the planet, in our nation, and, uh, and in the body of Christ. And this thought has been running through my mind of what do you do when you're surrounded by confusion? And that can be on a lot of different levels. Maybe you're dealing with disappointment in your family, in your finances. Maybe it's you're looking at things in the future and you're nervous, you're not sure what's going to happen. A variety of different things from the national um, governmental level down to your own personal home, your family, all these different things. What do you do when you're surrounded by confusion? Because there's a lot of people, a lot of us, we're like, I don't know really what to believe. Because there's, we, the good news is we're in this information age where we have access to so much information. The bad news is we're in this information age where we have access to so much information. And the problem with fake news is it's not always fake. And it's like, what's fake news and what's real news? And I don't even know what to think anymore. There's just so much information that's available. And what's really crazy is just some little device like this. We have access to so much information. So I think one of the things the Lord has been leading me to, challenging me with, encouraging me with, is when you don't know what to believe, 
focus on the things that you know are true. Because I can have a question, a million and one questions about these things over here, but man, I want to focus on that which I know to be true. And there are some things that never, never, never change. They're not up for debate. They're not up for public opinion. They're not up to uh, changing laws and changing seasons. They're not, they're not mutable. It's the ever-changing truth of who God is. And so when you're not sure what to believe or to think, and there's this swirling confusion around you, man, hold fast to that which you know that you know that you know to be true. And only through that can you figure out the rest as to what's really true. Even when it comes to the prophetic, you won't really know what God is saying until you know what he has said. Okay? Like we're a prophetic church. We just said, we're going to have Bob Hayes that come in May. Woo, he's amazing. He's an awesome prophet, amazing man of God. He's an external overseer. Hallelujah. Thank God for that man. But any prophetic word you get from any source, you're not going to rightly discern it and figure it out until you know what God has already said. So I have to filter it through the truth of his word, this objective word of God. I'm only going to rightly discern what he's saying if I only know what he's already said. So i got to feed on the truth of his word. See, because I can even get, uh, any of us can get, hear a prophetic word, and it doesn't mean that we're rightly going to hear it or, or perceive it accurately if we're not rooted and grounded in the nature and character of God. It, we have to filter it through the gospel. And that is, that is paramount. And so I know this is really simple, but... Uh, we need to be rooted in the simplicity of who God is. And then we can go on to other stuff and figure out what's going on in this crazy world. Um, so let's, um, I've had these two thoughts going through my mind as to, especially when it comes to prophecy, There's all kinds of prophetic words and that can, again, I would say, man, we love prophets and we, we honor the gift of prophecy. But because we live in a day and age in which we have access to so much information, it can be overwhelming where it's like, if you say, just believe what the prophets are saying. Like, okay, which one of the 4,863 on the planet? And out of the 460 that are contradicting each other, which one do we believe? It's like, whoa. Now, obviously, there's some prophets and prophetic people who are, you know, are on the same page. They're just coming at th things from a different perspective. But it can be confusing. But there's lots of promises in Scripture, but there's two that I want to focus on this morning. And here's two basic things that I know from scripture, okay? Two promises that I'm gonna step out and I'm gonna prophesy over our lives. It's about as risky 
Now, I would say even less risky than prophesying a few years ago that whoever is going to win the Super Bowl represented the, the nation, either the Patriots or the Eagles, okay? Less risky than that. Jesus promises from Scripture that we will have trials. Now, probably most of us, if we, if we, went, if we were to go into your home, you would not find that posted on your refrigerator, most likely, you probably don't have a plaque of it in your living room or anything like that, most likely. I know I don't. It's nothing I get excited about. I don't, I'm not looking for trials. But the word makes it really clear that we will have trials. Matter of fact, Peter goes on to say, don't be surprised by the painful trial you are suffering. So that's a promise from scripture. Look, I don't like that, but here's what I do like is that the word of God is faithful. God is so faithful to warn us ahead of time and to even tell us, look, it's normal. So you're not caught off guard. It's like, I don't want to go through the trial, but if I'm going to face trials, man, I'm really, God, I'm really glad that God is warning us ahead of time as a good father warning us about what's up ahead and what's coming down the pike and like, hey, be ready for this. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be shocked when you go through a painful trial. Because there will be suffering. And then here's another promise. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. In the last days, says the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's amazing. That's a good promise. I like that. And I think sometimes we have those two promises separated in our minds. Like how on earth could those two things go together? How could those two things match? It's like, I'll take the pour out his spirit on all flesh thing. Woo, Holy Ghost, hallelujah. And then you got the suffering over here. But by golly, we're Americans. We got the American dream. Hallelujah. We believe in blessing and peace and prosperity and I'm, I'm all for that. And it's like, yeah, Pentecostal power, pour out your spirit on all flesh. But man, I really don't want the suffering aspect. And it's one of the reasons why I'm grateful to be able to connect with other global leaders and parts of the body of Christ. I try to keep up on what's going on in the body of Christ around the globe. And then specifically with um, people that I've met um, friendships that I have, different leaders I've been in contact with, and especially this past year with, um, you know, so many Zoom meetings, so much is done on Zoom, these different Zoom meetings, and hearing stories of amazing things going on and amazing persecution at the same time. We long for revival, but there is, a, there is a price of persecution that often comes with that. And so we can look around. It's, it's just, it's healthy for us as Americans to get our eyes off of our country for a moment and get a bigger global perspective on what's going on in the body of Christ around the planet, okay? Some of you remember, it was, uh, I think it was, yeah, Two years ago, next month, I'm pretty sure, um, I got back from the, the nation of Sri Lanka. I was ministering at a, 
youth and young adult conference there. The next week, I was here um, getting ready to lead worship for our Easter service. And all of a sudden, my WhatsApp started blowing up with all these texts and all these photos of several bombs that went off in several different churches throughout the island of Sri Lanka as Islamic terrorists targeted those churches specifically on Easter morning to blow Christians up. Hundreds of people died and hundreds more to this day still the scars in their body or missing parts of their body. That was very sobering going, okay, I was just there a few days earlier when literally terrorists were kind of casing the city looking for Christians and foreigners to kill. I fit the bill on both. Very sobering. And that a few, I think just a few of those kids who were at the youth conference, youth and young adult conference, they were in some of the churches that were bombed. It's sobering. And so I hear reports of places, other nations around the globe where some of the fastest growing churches on the planet are being hunted down by some of the worst regimes on the planet. Government that does not allow their people much freedom at all. Intense suffering. Hearing reports of nations where people get saved and they have to, this is how their family has to talk to one another. Okay, honey, what do you want me to do if the police come into our home? Because we know that they're going to they're gonna pull you off to jail. They're going to put you in prison for a while. The women know that they'll be raped. Each family member knows they'll be beaten. And that they have to talk with each other as a husband and wife, and then they have to talk to the kids. What do we need to do? How do you want me to respond? And what do we do to respond when they're beating us and they're torturing us, and then they're like, okay, hey, you know what? It's not working on you, but we'll start torturing your kids, and maybe that'll give you, you know, cause you to renounce Christ. What do you want us to do? <sighs> Things like that. While at the same time, hearing reports of former Al-Qaeda leaders coming to Jesus moving in signs and wonders, moving in the power of God, winning others to Christ, seeing the dead raised. That's amazing. I applaud that. That's awesome. I love the outpouring of the Spirit. And yet at the same time, this is the context that it's going on. So we have two promises. There's a lot of other promises, but two promises from Scripture that we will have trials, we will have afflictions, but also, he says, in the last days, he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Let's look at this real quick out of John chapter 16. And um, go to verse 33. Jesus says, talking to his disciples here, John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Hallelujah. He's the Prince of Peace. Amen? It would only make sense that we have peace if we have the Prince of Peace living on the inside of us. 
You will have suffering in this world. Oh, wait, I thought he was just talking about peace. Now he's talking about suffering. It's all in the same verse. I've said these things to you so you will have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be encouraged. I have conquered the world. Well, what a statement. And can I be honest with you? What I feel like is our natural human tendency when we read that to think a couple of things. One, peace and suffering can't go hand in hand. It's either peace or it's suffering, but it can't be both at the same time. And at the end, when Jesus says, be encouraged, I've overcome the world. Well, that's great for you, Jesus. But you're not dealing with what I'm dealing with. I mean, yeah, you're the glorious son of God, but come on, it's 2021 and there's this pandemic and you don't know what's going to go on in the future, the decisions they're going to make. Some of us feel like we're losing more and more rights. What's going to happen in my future? Some of us forget about all that stuff. We're just like, man, I'm a single parent. Some of you are like, I'm not a single parent, but still the two of us aren't enough to deal with all these kids that we got and what, what we're dealing with as a family. Just life happens. There's, there's challenges. But Jesus says, be encouraged. I've overcome the world. And what I can't do is just read that and go, well, that's nice for you, Jesus, but what about me here? Because as you go on to read the epistles, Paul, one of Paul's most common phrases that he says is that we are in Christ. So when Jesus says, behold, I've, be encouraged. I've overcome the world. Well, now I am in Christ and Christ is in me. So the one who's overcome the world is living on the inside of me. If I'm a new covenant believer, and I'm talking to us this morning with the assumption that we all are, that the one who's overcome the world is on the inside of us. So he promises that there will be suffering. Go over to uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. See, part of what I mean when I say we won't rightly interpret what God's saying if we don't know what he's already said is if we think that suffering is something absolutely foreign to us as believers, then we won't rightly interpret what God might be speaking to us today or even rightly interpret our circumstances. Because we need to see what the word says. Let's, uh, let's start with, let's go with verse three. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, our sufferings. Because we know that affliction or suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. And hope will not disappoint us. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. If you really want to get a good New Testament understanding of, of suffering, read First and Second Peter. We're not going to look at those passages this morning 
But if you would, turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, there's, a, there's a passage in 1 Peter, there's chapter 1, where he talks about you've had to endure, for a while you've had to endure all kinds of various trials, all kinds of different suffering you've had to endure. But these have come so that your faith might be tested and tried like gold. And it's in that context that, he's, that he speaks of joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, I like that. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. But the context is our faith being tried and refined. And while I don't like suffering... What I want to do, what we need to do is come into agreement. John was talking this morning about perspective and heaven's perspective. That we would see suffering from God's perspective. Look, I'm not signing up for suffering. It's not anything I'm like volunteering for. But at the same time, we know it's inevitable. It's a part of being a human being on this planet, right? That's obvious. As some people have said, well, the one thing I know is true. The Bible is God promised there'd be problems. He's fulfilled that. <laughs> we have problems in this life. But beyond that, here's another thing that we need to see is the moment you signed up to follow Jesus, you did, in a sense, volunteer yourself for trials. Because said that anyone who wants to live righteous in God, in Christ Jesus, will indeed be persecuted. It's inevitable. Can't get away from it. So I don't, I don't like suffering. I'm not looking for any more of it. But man, I want to see from God's perspective. And if God has a purpose with taking all of the chaos that, that the devil does and the free choice of man, I'm not saying God's the author behind the suffering, but all the chaos of all the warfare, if God's going to weave that together and use it to conform me to his image and he's going to bring glory to his name out of it and he wants to produce joy unspeakable and full of glory in my life, then man, I want to embrace it with that perspective. That's, that's what I want to do. I'm not there yet, but I think I'm getting a little closer, I hope. So I was talking with someone the other day and just about this principle of how many love Romans 8.28? God works all things together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And how many of you can look back at your life 10, 15, 20, 25 years later, younger people, two years later, three years later, look back and go, wow, I, man, I was so frustrated back then, but now I see how God worked that together for my good. Anybody? That's awesome. And you can celebrate and go, yes, God was faithful. How many of you realized, gosh, it would have been easier if I would have had that perspective at the beginning. <laughs> Again, I'm not there yet, but here's what I'm learning. As I've seen God's faithfulness over and over and over and over again in the midst of disappointment, I've seen his faithfulness. I 
I'm learning to say, okay, God, I don't know what's going on here. This totally threw me off. I did not expect this to happen. I had an expectation, and so far it's gone the opposite direction. Lord, I thank you that your word is true. Romans 8, 28 says you are working all things together for the good of those who love you or called according to your purpose. That's me. Even in all my weakness and all my immaturity, that is me. So Lord, I thank you that you are taking this situation and you're working it together for my good. I don't have to understand how you're working it together for my good to declare it. I don't have to figure out how he's working it together for my good to to come into agreement with heaven's perspective. God, you're bringing good out of this. You're a specialist at bringing good out of bad situations. You are really, really good at that. There is no bigger example of that than the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, you and I, only are allowed to interpret the love of God through one lens and one lens only, and that is through the cross. That's it. Because what is the tendency of the enemy for every single one of us? Well, if God really loved you, then why would you be going through this? Where was God when this happened? Where was God when this didn't work out or when this loved one died or when this failed in your life? Anybody recognize that voice? Over and over. He does the same thing with everybody on the planet. If God is real, if God is good, if he is who he says he is, then where was he when this happened? Why did he allow this? All these different things, all these swirling accusations against God. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are only allowed to interpret the love of God through one lens and one lens only through the objective reality of what Jesus did at the cross, period. If you go on to read further down into Romans 5 that we just read, it speaks of while we were weak, he died for us. And then he says, like the next verse, all in the same context, he says, while we were still sinners, which sounds a little worse than being weak. And then he goes down even further, and it says, while we were God's enemies, that even sounds weird. Hey, that's one thing to go, well, hey, we're all sinners. But then to say, while you were an enemy of God, Christ died for you. He's an amazing, good God. He is so merciful and kind. See, all of us in this room, we have a million and one reasons to be grateful, to be thankful for his blessings. But at the end of the day, he never owed us a single one of them. And if Jesus did, never did another thing for us, and he will, it's who he is, it's his nature and character, but even if he never did, apparently never did another thing for us, we could always, forever, for all of eternity, look to the cross and say he did more than enough to merit my love.
the tendency, our human tendency, and thus the strategy of the enemy is to get us to define the nature and character of God through a million and million other things other than the cross. The only way you're going to rightfully interpret your subjective experiences is through the objective reality of what he did at the cross. So where was God when this tragedy happened? Out of all, for all of us in this room, there's all of us. Every one of us could look to disappointments in our life and go, I don't get it. I don't know why this happened and why this didn't turn out this way. And how come I thought God was going to do this and I thought God was going to come through in this way and it didn't happen and it didn't happen and, and I don't know why. I mean, these circumstances, all of us can point to different things in our lives. But the question of if God is love needs to be answered like this. If God is love, then... <laughs> If God was not love, why would he send his only son to the cross? If God wasn't a perfectly loving father who wanted to rescue us and redeem us, then why would he not send his son to the cross? He is extravagant in his love. And so no matter what happens in my life from this day forward, no matter what's happened in my life all of these days up until now, I got, I'm only allowed to interpret the love of God through this one thing. Jesus died on the cross for me while I was still a sinner, while I was an enemy of God. He gave me more than I could ever ask or imagine. So here's the deal. Jesus promises this tribulation. Woohoo! Great news, huh? Again, I would say, man, I, I would love to you know, be able to predict here in only the beginning, you know, the early stage of the second month of 2021, hey, pandemic's going to be over. All the crisis, all the chaos going around the globe is going to end. We're going to, quote, get back to normal, whatever that means. I can't do that. My gut instinct tells me we're going to see more chaos. Don't want to see more chaos. But well, that's what my gut instinct tells me. But here's the really, 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 really good news, even in the midst of crisis. Again, whether that, you're like, I don't know about what's going on in the world. I just know my, my own life, my own family, there's crisis. The biggest problem that you and I could ever face, the greatest crisis we could ever have, has already been resolved. There is no bigger crisis that you and I could have than to stand before a holy God and to stand guilty before a perfectly righteous judge. That is the greatest crisis we could ever face. And Jesus already took care of that. That's good news. That's amazing. So while I don't like the present trials that I go through, I've got to keep it in perspective with the bigger picture. Woo! Any day not in hell is a good day. Thank you, Jesus. You see, there's been a lot of talk in recent years of, well, you know, brother, you want to make sure you're on the right side of history. Can I tell you what? History is kind of a funny thing from man's perspective and how we're constantly rewriting, reinterpreting history. It's a fickle thing. The opinion of man is a fickle thing. 
I agree. I want to be on the right side of history. And that will only be made plain on that day. On that day when we stand before him. I want to be on the right side of his story. I want to be on the, I want to be on the right side agreeing with him. It says in Romans 11, Paul says, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? He, you know, he doesn't answer the question because the answer is obvious. Nobody! Who has ever given, sacrificed, given so much to God that God owes them the American dream? Not me. All of, his, all of the blessings in my life are by grace. I am so thankful I have not got, I have not received what I earned. I'm so thankful I have not received what I deserved. But mercy triumphed over wrath at the cross. This phrase has been going through my heart for a while now that I feel like is probably gonna need to stick with me in the days to come but that I am more in Christ than I am in crisis. Not denying the reality that there's crisis that happens in life. I'm just saying, what, what is more real to us? The crisis that we happen to be facing or the Christ that we're in? I'm not there yet, but I want to see that so clearly that I'm in him and he is in me, that I'm in Christ. So let's look at one last verse. I think this will be the last verse. We'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Go to verse 2. Paul speaking, I believe the Macedonian church is here. During a severe testing by affliction, yeah, ouch, their abundance of joy, well, that's weird, and their deep poverty, <laughs> that doesn't sound fun, overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. What? How on earth can Paul put these, all these words together in one sentence? Severe trial and abundant joy. Not about you, but I never grew up thinking that those words could ever go together. I mean, either you got the trial or you got the joy. And I might get joy on the other side of the trial, but he even says in the midst of their trial, great joy. And then he says this, as if to make it even more practical, he says, out of their great poverty, they welled up with rich generosity. What? How can you, but what do you mean? Generosity when you're living in poverty. Man, you're just scraping by, trying to get through. How on earth could you overflow with generosity when you don't have anything? And yet Paul is given a description of the Macedonian churches. I read this a few years ago. Man, it smacked me right between the eyes. It's like, what in the heck? And if you never have those moments when you read the Bible, go back and read it again. Let the word of God smack you upside the head in a challenging but very loving way. Out of their severe trial, they overflowed with joy. 
Again, going back to what John was saying this morning, obviously they had a perspective that was different. They obviously had a perspective that was way different than natural man. Jesus said that we will have suffering, but he's given us peace. There was a peace in the middle of the trial. And Paul says for the Macedonian churches, there was joy in the midst of their trial. And then to make it very practical, he says, out of their extreme poverty, they welled up or overflowed with rich generosity. The human tendency is to go, oh my goodness, finances are tight. I've got to hold on to the little bit that I have. God, I really believe in generosity. That's awesome. You're really generous and I want to be like you. I want to give. And by golly, I'm going to do that one of these days. If I could just get that winning ticket, man, oh, I would love to give away lots of money. You know, if I could just get a better job, that when that day comes, God, you give me that job, and then I will be generous. God, if I could just get that promotion, then I will, I'll really, I'll make sure I tithe, and I will be generous to people. That's our natural tendency. And this is what I found. That the more money you get coming in, when you think like that, you will find a million and one other things that that needs to be spent on rather than giving. It's the way of man. It's just natural thinking. I got to keep it to myself. And suddenly, when more money does come in, you somehow find all these other things that it needs to be spent on rather than being generous. Is that not the way of man? That's just natural thinking. And Paul flips that on its head and says, this is the example of the Macedonian churches. Paul doesn't say that the Macedonian churches were anything exceptional or they were the rare case. He didn't say that the Macedonian churches didn't get the revelation of prosperity that we have in 2021 in America. He said, nope, the body of Christ in Macedonia. This is how they responded to their trial. They welled up in joy. And this is how they responded to their poverty. They welled up in generosity. This is what I love about God. He will honor even the smallest little steps moving in the right direction. You see, I would venture to say these Macedonians probably we're not sitting around going, hey, Martha, our house just got confiscated by the government. Whoa, man, that's awesome. <laughs> wow, our kids were just taken away from us. Man, this is amazing. Probably weren't doing that. Most likely, they were in deep pain, deep affliction, going, God, what's going on? And Paul's reminding them about pain that they're going through the holy spirit who now lives on the inside of them is saying hey jesus promised that there would be afflictions okay okay this is normal this this isn't something rare but we're gonna choose joy god this hurts really bad but in the midst of our pain we're gonna offer this offering of worship to you lord you are good to worship you i live to worship you, I live and live to worship you. God, you're good. Oh, you're good. God, we're in pain, but Lord, you are good. 
Oh, Lord, who's given to you? Who has ever given to you that God should repay? Certainly not me, Lord. God, I'm thankful that I escape hell and I'm going to heaven. Thank you that you live on the inside of me. Thank you that you came to make me brand new. Lord, I choose joy today. I just take a step in the right direction. And I would venture to say that in the midst of their pain, them making a little choice to move in the right direction, a little bit of joy begin to bubble up on the inside of them. And it might have even been something like this. Martha, you feel that? I feel something bubbling up on the inside of me. That seems kind of foreign during this season because it's been so painful, but I almost kind of forgot what it felt like. But I think that's joy, Martha. Ooh, that feels pretty good. You feel that too? Yeah, I do, honey. Oh, Lord, thank you that you're the joy giver. You're the joy giver. You're a covenant-keeping God. Going through a fiery trial. God, we ain't got much. Like, all I got are these two pennies. But there's some people who even have less. So I'm going to take one of my pennies. I'm going to find someone who has even less than me, and I'm going to give it. God sees that and delights in that. It's the way of the kingdom. See, this passage, this verse, is not just, hey, this, this is something that the Macedonians did. This is a lifestyle for all of us. Just say, I'm going to take what little bit that I have and I'm going to give it. And here's what I found. When I shrink back in fear, acting as if I'm an orphan, then I'm not going to give. No matter how much or how little I have. But when I see that I got a really big God who's a really good papa, who's been so extravagantly kind to me, I'm gonna start giving. And if I'm determined in my heart not to give, I will find a million excuses not to give. But if I'm, in, if I'm determined in my heart to be a giver, nothing can stop me because the spirit of grace cooperates with us to give. In this case, it's money, but I'm all kinds of things. And when you choose that, you cooperate with the spirit of grace. And all of a sudden, there's a power on you, and giving can be addictive. In the best sense of the word, where you find people to bless, you find people in need, and you give to them. So all these passages that we read, what Jesus said, talking about what Peter wrote, and then looking at some of these passages with Paul about purposes and what God wants to do with and through in the midst of suffering and affliction, Paul summarizes these churches, the Macedonian churches. They overflowed with joy in the midst of their suffering. And they overflowed in generosity in the midst of their poverty. What that tells me is, I ain't got no excuse. That's not good English, but it's still true. I have no excuse. I have no excuse. Two words.
worship you, I live. To worship you, I live and live to worship you. Oh, to worship you, I live. To worship you, I live and live to worship you. Father, I thank you <laughs> that we don't have to understand how you're working all things together for our good in order to just believe that you do it. Lord, I'm grateful that I get to look back on years of seeing your faithfulness. I can see how you wove Romans 8.28 into my life, but Lord, I stand here today February 7th, 2021. And I say, no matter what is coming up ahead, you are working all things together for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. Everything. The free will of man, my own failures, my own mistakes, other people's mistakes, from a, a global level to a national level, down to my everyday relationships. You are working all things together for our good. Father, I thank you that though you owe us nothing, you've given us all things in Christ. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.